Well, as Trey said, we're going to finish the series on the Reformation. So 500 years ago, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg. And one of the most important things in, I think, church history, but also in European history, happened uh, that day. I, I, I think, as somebody who is a, a firm Protestant, I think what the Reformation did was recovered what we call biblical Christianity or, or Christianity that comes from what the Bible teaches. We think that through thousands and a few hundred years of tradition, the gospel was lost. It was underneath the surface of, of what had been taught. We believe that in the 16th century, there was a retrieval, a recovery of that gospel. And that, in essence, is what the solas sum up. So first, you guys looked at sola scriptura, which is essentially the teaching that the Pope or the magisterium or sacred tradition does not hold the, the final rule and authority over our lives. It's actually scripture that God's ultimate and final self-revelation of himself is, are the scriptures that testify to Jesus, not the Pope, not sacred tradition. Secondly, we looked at sola fide. We, we looked at the idea that it is, it is by faith alone that we are saved. In the 16th century, there were a, a, a variety of, of, of things that were taught that where you could be made right with God. Primarily, indulgences were huge. And I'm sure Trey has, has discussed indulgences and what indulgences were. And a man named Tetzel, who was infamous in the 16th century, um, he had a, he had a, a little... I think Trey referred to it as a ditty. I'm not entirely sure what it is. But it essentially just says that a soul will spring from purgatory when a a coin goes into his pocket. So he's essentially saying that if you give me money, your loved ones who are probably in purgatory can go into heaven. And if you give me more money, you can go be with them in heaven. But obviously we believe that it is by faith alone that we're saved. We're made right with God. We're justified. Thirdly, we looked at uh, sola gratia, which is the idea that it, it is by grace alone that we are saved, that we're saved by grace through faith. Uh, Trey walked us through Ephesians 2, uh, showing that grace is the unmerited favor of God that he gives to us. And, and, and with that grace, we are, we are saved. Something that's really big in Roman Catholicism is the idea that you, you, in, you play a very substantial role in your salvation. It's taught that you, you, grace is infused in you. I'm not sure how much Trey got into this with you, but in, in Roman Catholicism, grace is something that enters into, into you and you do good works to merit your salvation. But of course, we emphatically deny that as Protestants. Again, if we look back at Ephesians 2, we see that good works play a very important role in the Christian life. But that comes after the moment of salvation. We look at Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 to say that. And then last week, apparently you guys got a lesson in Latin with solus Christus or solo Christo, which is the idea that Christ alone, the merits of Christ and him alone are the, 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 is the reason or the means by which we are saved. The unique God-man is the, the reason for our salvation. It is Jesus Christ alone that makes us right with God. 
because of his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection, his death in, in, in our place for the sins that, that, that we, in some senses, are, Christ died and made a way that we could be made right with God again. It, it, is, it is by nothing else. Paul makes this point in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about the, the resurrection. that If Jesus, this unique God-man, hadn't risen, we are the people to be pitied most. And I think that that's true if salvation is found anywhere else in, than in Jesus. So today, we're going to finish out with Soli Deo Gloria, the fifth and final slogan, if you will, of the Reformation. Soli Deo Gloria is simply Latin for to, to the, glory, the glory of God alone, to the, to the glory of God alone. I think that we see this really eloquently and beautifully put in the book of Romans. Now, I'm sure many of you have, have at least tried, waking up at 6 a.m., to read the book of Romans for your quiet time. You've probably opened it. You read maybe three verses. You thought, it's 6 a.m. Turned to Psalms, read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Closed the Bible, called it a quiet time. I know I've been there. I think I was there the other day. Not sure it was super early. But if, (laughs) it was very early. So Romans 1 to 11, the the entire book, if you will, is, is all theological. But, Paul gives his theological exposition from chapters 1 to 11, and he closes out that section with what Christian scholars call doxology, which is just worship. Let me read it for you. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him? that he might be repaid. And here's the last bit. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul has, in some sense, has climbed this mountain. If you think of Romans 1 to 11 as this mountain, he, he's climbed it and he's, he's looking at the, the creation that proclaims the glory of God. And he says, oh, he is astounded by what he sees. And he can't help but burst into worship. And he, he acknowledges that all of this salvation history, the arc, if you will, of history, the way in which history moves, is purposed towards the end of God. Let me, let, me, let me say that a different way. Not that God ends, but the end is God. Does, does that make sense? That things are going towards a destination. And that destination is God. All things end in his presence. We're, we're, the, the, the arc of history is moving towards him. That's what Paul is saying here. This is solely Deo Gloria made explicit. That, that everything is purposed towards and for God. He says that for from him, so, he, so God's the creator. Through him, God's the sustainer. And to him, he's the purpose, he's the goal, he's the reason for all things. And for that reason, to him be glory alone. So that's what we're going to unpack today. Soli Deo Gloria. We're going to unpack three verses of scripture. We're going to obviously use other scripture. But we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about this idea that God's glory 
is the thing into which all things move. We're going to look at it. If you want to look at your outline with me, the thing that I dropped earlier. The, f- the first point, we're, we're, honestly, we're probably going to spend the least amount of time in, in this point. What I, what I really want to get into is uh, the second point. But the first point is the glory of God in the Reformation. So essentially, that's historical theology. We're going to be looking at what the 16th century taught or said about the glory of God. Secondly, because we're, we're more than simply Reformation Christians, we're biblical Christians, we're going to look about what the glory of God is in the Bible. Hopefully, we're going to come away with uh, a, a meaningful and helpful definition of what glory is so that we can kind of better understand. Glory is one of those weird things where, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this in a second, but the English language just doesn't quite capture what it means. Uh, moreover, there are a lot of differing definitions of what it means in the Bible. So we're going to do kind of a narrow overview of, of what I think or what we think glory means. And then finally, we're going to do what's called practical theology. That's the third point, the glory of God in your life. So something, and again, I'll, I'll make this point later, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he's, he's talking about we are people who behold the glory of God. And because we're looking at it, we are changed. We're being made more glorious. So that means that our lives, we in some ways, we partake in the glory of God. Because he's glorious and we're his people, we, we, we are being made glorious. That's our purpose. That's our end. But what that looks like practically we're going we're gonna to address that, and we're going to get into that. So first, I just want to look at um, the glory of God in the Reformation. And immediately at the outset, I just want to say, I'm very thirsty. But second, what I want to say is that I love it when a joke lands. It makes me feel so good. So would, would, would John Calvin, Martin Luther, or Melanchthon, or Ulrich Zwingli, all reformers, would they have said something like, the Roman Catholics are usurping the glory of God. No, and as, 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 as far as I can tell, I don't actually think that Martin Luther said, soli deo gloria. I don't think he ever used those words. Moreover, he was, he was German, so I'm sure he wouldn't have said Latin. Well, maybe he would have. He was a monk. But we don't really get anything that very explicitly says the, to, to God's glory alone. However, we do get the, these ideas in the Reformation. We get these ideas of, of what the Reformers thought about God and his glory. So if, if, if this isn't something they explicitly said, the Reformers, why, why is it that we, 500 years later, are, are kind of making this an issue, uh, the fifth sola, if you will? Well, I think that if, if Roman Catholicism denies the other four that were saved by grace through faith, according to, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, then necessarily or logically, it would deny to the glory of God alone. Because if, if, if we partake in the process of salvation in any way, it takes God's glory that is due his name. I think the Bible is explicitly clear. We go to Isaiah 42, 7 or 8, one of those verses, maybe both. It says that God will not share his glory with another. And the New Testament makes explicitly clear that God is glorified in the salvation of his people. We could go to Ephesians 1 and talk about that. We go to uh, the, uh, the way in which Paul breaks down salvation. He says that the Father chooses a people, 
the Son accomplishes their redemption with his blood, and the Spirit seals them. And how does he end that section? He says, to the praise of his glory. Jake's story earlier, the story of his salvation, his, his coming to knowledge and relationship with Jesus, God is glorified in that story. But if you'll notice, Jake was, was very clear to say that it's not something that he did, but, but that God did. And that's because salvation is of the Lord. The Psalms are explicitly clear about that. Salvation is something that belongs to God. It's not something that we can apprehend or take. It's something that he gives us. It's a gift. Roman Catholicism in the 16th century and to this day denies that. They reaffirm with their, with their this big document called Vatican II. It happened in the 90s, if I'm not mistaken. They essentially reaffirm, they doubled down on the things that they taught 500 years ago. That's why, and you guys may hear this if you study the Reformation or all, there's a big question, is the Reformation over? Well, no, it's not. Because we're still divided on this issue. In fact, I, I think we're more divided. But that's why the Reformation is important. That's why historical theology is important. David Van Drunen, he's a, he's a man who wrote uh, To the Glory of God Alone. It was a new book that just came out. says this, Rome, of course, would never admit to usurping God's glory. Even meritorious human works, it says, are accomplished by divine grace infused to the sacraments. The church's traditions grow organically from the practice of the apostles, and the pope is the servant of servants. But the reformers came to understand how such claims, though perennially attractive, ultimately reveal the deceit of the human heart. If Rome's doctrine of authority and doctrine of salvation are true, all glory does not belong to God alone. I said that if, if they deny the other four solas, then they necessarily would deny soli deo gloria. That's because I think that soli deo gloria is the glue that holds all things together. When I say that, I mean that if we are justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, then all of this has to be to the glory of God alone. Because all of those are, are things that he gives. He's given us his son. He's given us grace. He's given us the faith that we exercise to place in him. His scriptures, they're given to us, preserved for us. These are all things that the Lord has given us. It's for his glory. He does it because they're his. And again, we, we talked about how in Ephesians 1, the whole of salvation, the whole of salvation process is aimed at or goes towards the praise, our worship of his glory. For the reformers, if the Roman Catholic Church taught that salvation was not something that was wholly accomplished by God, then it denies, ultimately, that salvation is for God. We can see this, again, in Ephesians 1. And I, 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 I guys, we are, we're not, again, we're not Reformation Christians. We are biblical Christians. We want to go to what the Bible says. And the Bible is explicitly clear. Salvation is of the Lord. He brings men and women, men like Jake, to himself 
for the praise of his glory. Go to Ephesians 3. He's created the church so that we may proclaim his manifold wisdom, his glory, his excellence. Salvation is for the Lord because it is first of the Lord. Well, if we believe that the scriptures are our sole authority, we need to understand what the scriptures say about the glory of God. So that, that I want to move into our second point now. Um, glory of God in the Bible. And so for this one, if you're taking notes, um, I think it's, it's, it's helpful when the person who's talking to me kind of helps break down this stuff. We're going to be looking at two sub-points in this section. Glory is a, is a, is a difficult word in the Bible because it, it means different things. Different words are translated. Different Hebrew words are used. Um, different Greek words are used. So it's, it's hard to exactly capture the meaning. So it's something that kind of shifts um, from uh, you know, across the Bible. But I think that we can get a really good definition of it, and we're going to work that out in a second. But I say all that to say we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at glory in the Bible. So just simply what glory means or what the Bible has to say about glory. And then most explicitly, the second point is the glory of God in Christ, um, which was probably my favorite if I'm being honest with you guys, it was, it was my favorite thing to write um, in doing prep work for this. And it was, um, it, was, it was hard to not just kind of almost want to start crying when you, when you think about this stuff. And I hope that, I hope some of that catches on with you guys. But again, at the outset, I want to say that it is, it is impossible to survey every single way in which the word glory is used throughout the scriptures. Um, it's something that I, I researched. A, a biblical scholar said that there are 12 separate Hebrew words that we translate as the word glory in English. And then there are also eight separate Greek words. So there are 20 different words that we are translating into the one word glory. So, I mean, very obviously, we're just not going to be able to exactly get what glory means. But just because we don't have the exact English word, um, that doesn't mean that we're not going to be able to, to, to know what it truly means. And I'll, I'll unpack that in a second. But, I do want to make one point because this, this is kind of how glory is generally thought of. The Hebrew, I'm only going to give you one Hebrew word. So if you want to write this one down, that's fine. It's only one. It's called kabod. It's K-A-B-O-D. So that's this idea of something that, and again, we, we can't even get a proper, proper translation of it, exactly what it means. But we know it means something that's heavy. It's really weighty. It's substantive. It's massive. If you have your Bibles with me, with you, I have my Bible with me, do you? Trey almost gave it away earlier. If you have yours, turn with me to Isaiah 6, verse 3. So chapter 6, verse 3. Pretty good chance if you just stick your thumb right in the middle of the Bible and then flip it, you'll be in Isaiah or the Psalms. If you're in the Psalms... Keep flipping right. So we get a really weird picture in Isaiah. I mean, we'll just be honest. The book of Isaiah is a little crazy at times. Um, But we get a a fairly clear, terrifying, but clear picture of the throne room of God. So uh, Isaiah is, is before the throne of the Lord, and he's witnessing these creepy, scary angel things, uh, worshiping him. And they say, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, for those of you who are, you know, listen to sermons and do podcasts, you're obviously going to know this name, John Piper. John Piper is immensely helpful in this area. Of kind of, well, first of all, one, he is a, what I would call a first-rate exegete. Like, he is a very good interpreter of Scripture. Um, he's also very clear. He's also very pastoral. And I think the Bible is essentially, it's pastoral. It's concerned about your souls. So John Piper is very helpful for these things. He asks a que- he poses a question at the text. And he says, what is the difference between the holiness of God and the glory of God? Because it seems like Isaiah here is, is making a distinction. He's saying that they're not the same thing, but they're related. If that makes sense. Isaiah says that the Lord is holy. Now, if, if you guys were raised in the church, I wasn't. But if you, if you were, you probably came away with this idea, like this kind of weird, fuzzy, vague understanding of what holiness is. But essentially what holiness is, it's, it's God's perfection. It's the fact that he is holy, sep- holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, like entirely. He is entirely perfect. He's in a separate class. So think about, like, Scott's in Little League T-ball, and God is, you know, swinging home runs in the World Series in the Major League. I mean, God is so far removed from who I am. He's perfect. If God is good... He's infinitely good. All of his attributes, his justice, his mercy, his love, he has those infinitely and perfectly. That's what holiness means. And, and that it just means separate, distinct, perfect. Piper says that his holiness, is he, he being God, he is as God that nobody else is. It signifies his infinite worth, his intrinsic, which just means it, it exists inside. So in, in, intrinsic to human nature is curiosity. It just means it, it naturally exists within something. So Piper is saying that something that naturally exists in God is infinite worth. Infinite value. So Isaiah says that the whole earth, the entirety of the earth, will be full of his perfections. But it doesn't say, and we might expect that it would say the earth is full of his his holiness, but it doesn't actually say that. It says that it's full of his glory. It's not full of his holiness. It's full of his glory. In other words, his holiness is going to be put on display. It'll be made known. Think about it as a theater. We go to Psalm 19. We think about creation as a theater. And it, it, it proclaims the, the glory and majesty of the Lord. That's this idea. That, that's essentially what glory is in Isaiah. What Isaiah says about glory. It's God's holiness, his perfection on display, flooding through the earth. So, so what is glory? I'm going to use a, a word that maybe you guys don't know. I hope you know. Manifest. God's glory is his manifest beauty and uh, of beauty of ho- his holiness. It is his going public of his holiness. His holiness on display for all to see. That is glory. The glory of God is the display of his perfections. Again, if we think of the universe as a theater, 
we can understand that God's perfectness, His holiness, is shown to us in His glory. Our experiencing of God's perfectness is us partaking in glorifying God. When we acknowledge that His perfection is on display, that creation screams that there must be a creator. Romans 1. We're we're acknowledging his glory. So glory, again, is God's perfection on display. Second, because I think some of you probably already know where I'm going with this, but we're going to look at the second point. It's God's glory in Christ. If Jesus is God incarnate, which I believe he is, then Jesus is the incarnation of God's glory. He is the incarnation of the perfection of God. All over the New Testament do we see language that mimics or reflects that fact. In Hebrews 1.3, he, he being Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. The first chapter of John says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 2, calls him the Lord of glory. Which, guys, is fascinating. We live in a time where a lot of people think that the, the, the Bible speaks well of Jesus, but it doesn't actually paint him as God. Well, if, again, if we rightly understand what glory is, the, the, the manifest beauty that belongs to God is, is only his And the New Testament speaks of him as the Lord, the owner of glory. I think that that's a pretty decent apologetic that the Bible speaks well and highly of Christ's divinity. So here we're going to take a more narrow definition of glory, of God's glory. It's Christ. Now, the Sunday school answer, it's Jesus, right? It's always Jesus somehow. Jesus is the glory of God Put on display. Just a minute ago, we defined glory as God's perfection. Well, well, the New Testament says that Jesus is the exact image of God, the radiance of his glory. If we want to see the manifest beauty of God, we look at Jesus. John 1.18 speaks well of this, that, that, that to know who God is, we simply look to Jesus Because he reveals who God is. So if we have questions about what God's glory looks like, we look to Jesus. We can speak of Jesus as the glory of God. And and, and if we think about this as like, like, again, in terms of a play, of a theater, that the entire universe is God's theater. Jesus Christ is the actor. The only actor in this drama, this unfolding drama of God's history. And we're participants. We watch. We sit and watch and wait in anticipation to see what God is going to do. And I want to take a a, a minute briefly to tie back into Reformation theology. You guys have spoken a lot of Martin Luther in the past four weeks. Martin Luther had this concept. It's, uh, It's called the theology of glory. Versus theology of the cross. So for, for Luther, Luther thought it improper to think of God explicitly or only in terms of raw power. Or, or, simply, or, or holy otherness. 
because we can't, he says, and I agree with him, we can't really know who God is until we witness his broken and mangled body on the cross. The theology of the cross shows that the glory of God would be killed for his people, to secure a, a, a way for his people. If you've spent any time with me at all, like, like five minutes, like consecutively, you have probably heard me somehow, somehow, like long shot even, just like tie something into Philippians 2, 5 to 11. It's like the only scripture I know. It's just some of my favorite verses in scripture. Stephen's laughing in the back because he's lived with me for two years and he probably hasn't memorized by now. I'm going to read it. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. When he's talking about this mind, he's simply just saying an idea of um, humility, um, interest in others at the expense of yourself. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I mean, guys, I mean, I don't know how it gets more beautiful than that. I mean, these, these verses are heartbreaking. There was a, I couldn't, I could not read this yesterday and just not tear up. But there was a, there's an early church father. His name is Melito of Sardis. And he gave an, uh, a homily or a, a sermon on Easter in the year 180. And he, if I'm not mistaken, he ended it with a, a sort of a poem. And he essentially said that we have hung the one who was hung. We have, we have hung the man who hung the moon. The one who created all things, or the one who made all things, was made fast on a tree. God, the, the, God's glory, Jesus, died, was, was, was obedient to the Father for his glory. If, you, if you'll notice, Paul ends that saying, to the glory of God the Father, Christ's death, the glory of God, was, was, was killed for the glory of God the Father. He was, he was raised up so that you and I could bow the knee and proclaim Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. The glory of God is expressed in the profound humiliation of His Son. Jesus, the glory of God, is killed. But this happens for our good, right? What's the, what is the message that we place, that, that, that we believe? That according to the scriptures, Jesus died and rose on the third day. What do we believe about that death? We believe that Christ took on the sin that is due our name and gave us, exchanged the righteousness that is due his name. That's a, another big Reformation uh, term. It's called uh, imputation. It's 
the idea that Christ's righteousness is imputed or given. Imputation simply means to give. Is, 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 is given or reckoned or credited to us. We are given Christ's righteousness. The glory of God. Now, this is, this is what I want to take away from this point. God has promised to achieve his glory. It's his. It's due his name. But he's also bound together our good with it. So when he promises to achieve his glory, he swears that he's going to achieve our good. And the greatest good that we have is Christ. And he gives that to us. God glorifies himself in his gospel. That gospel results in a salvation of a people, of us. If you you believe in the gospel, if if you are a, a follower of Jesus Christ, God's glory has resulted in your good. If you are, if you do belong to God, then turn to our third and final point. I'll make this brief because we're running out of time. The glory of God in your life. We, we live, we exist for God. Uh, everything that we do is for the glory of God. Paul says this in, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 10 or 1 Corinthians 8. Um, eat, drink, do all things to the glory of God. All things. So when you're studying for a test, you're doing it for the glory of God. When you're making coffee, Justin, do it for the glory of God. All, all things find that all, all activities find their end in acknowledging or recognizing that God is perfect. So God's glory, again, and we I mentioned Second Corinthians earlier. God's glory isn't some like merely some abstract thing, especially if we believe that God's glory is Jesus Christ incarnate. Then it, like God's glory became flesh, and if we behold or if we look at at Jesus. Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is that as we look at Jesus, as we recognize his glory, we are being changed. This is the, the doctrine of sanctification, which Trey has talked about at least two or three separate times, I think, as far as in the, the Reformation series. It's just the, the idea that we are being made holy. We are being made to look more like Jesus. That's sanctification. Our lives should be dedicated towards, towards acknowledging that God's perfect or God's towards acknowledging his perfection in all things. That's why you hear all these like sermon illustrations about the Grand Canyon. Because we have that verse in Psalm 19 that speaks about the wonder of creation proclaiming the glory of God. And in some ways that is brilliantly true. And I think actually the glory of God in your life, a, a wonderful way that we can reflect the glory of God is by being artists. Now I understand that for some of us are like, mm, artists, that's not a, that's that's weird. I can't draw. Guess what? I can't either. I can't draw a stick figure. But I, I think if we take a larger definition of art, that we create things like coding. Kyle Smith codes. He's excellent at coding. That's an art. That's an art form. He is partaking in God's creating things. Juliana and I, we're both English majors, so we have kind of an art-ish background. We partake in the glory of God by creating, by crafting, by moving things that God has already created, the Macarena, moving things into place. 
we're acknowledging that God ultimately is the creator of all things. We're giving him his glory because we're acknowledging that we're creators, but in a finite way. Because we're creating from the material that God has created. I think art is a beautiful way that we can, we can turn glory back to God. I think that we have a, an important role in bringing about God's glory. Habakkuk 2.14 talks about there will be a day when the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will, will cover the earth, you know, as ex- expansive as the seas, essentially. Well, we understand that if, if, if the glory of God is Jesus, then we should be talking about him. I think this has implications for evangelism. I think that a, a way in which the glory of, the, of God plays itself out in our lives is evangelism. We talk about the message that glorifies God. We talk about his gospel. We, we talk about it with our friends who don't necessarily believe it in the hope and expectation that God is going to save them through it. Romans 10 is explicitly clear about this. Titus 2, another great, great, you know, the whole, the whole Bible is great. Don't quote me on that. The part about only like Titus being good. Titus 2.11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Paul tells Titus, declare these things. Like Titus, we should declare these things. We should declare the message of God's glory in Christ for us, for his glory. I think it has implications for evangelism. And this is, this is a final one. And this one was, I would almost say this one's more for me, I think. I think that we live in an age where you know, cynicism and pessimism, are almost, it almost seems like they're, they're, they're virtues, right? It almost seems like, oh man, this person must be really smart because they question everything. They don't trust anything. They think the worst in everything. I do that a lot. And it's bad. But I think that if, if we believe that we know where all things are going, they're going to end in the glory of God, then we of all people should be the most hopeful. I think that the glory of God has implications for how we view the world. I'm not saying that we have to be an, an optimist. We understand that, we're, that there are bad things that are going to happen. But in the end, we have hope because we know how things are going to end. We know that one day, another fantastic verse, Revelation 21. I mean, I dare you to read that and not weep. That one day, God is going to come down from heaven and he's going to wipe away our tears and there will be no more pain. It will be in the glory and presence of the Lord forever. We know how things are going to end. They're going to culminate in his glory. We should be the most hopeful people on this planet. If we believe that all things are for the glory of God alone, then that includes our lives. Our lives are means by which God's perfections are put on display. We live lives that acknowledge that we live according to the unfolding drama of the glory of God. So whose life are you living for? Are you living for yours? Or are you living in God's? So to conclude, just really briefly, um, we've looked at the glory of God in the Reformation. 
We've looked at the glory of God in the Bible. We've given a definition. Uh, we've talked about how Christ is the ultimate expression of the glory of God. And then we've discussed how we participate in God's glory. Earlier I said the Reformation is not over. And I don't think that it is. Roman Catholicism and Protestants are, I would honestly argue, more divided on more topics now than we were in the 16th century. The Reformation is not over. Historical theology is immensely important for understanding where you're, as Protestants, if you are Protestant, if you're not, that's fine. Um, but as Protestants, we have a theological heritage. And, and this is it. Guys, we, we exist in a tradition that seeks to glorify God above all things. I hope, I hope that your lives are living towards participating in God's drama. It's for his glory. We're going to close quoting a guy named James Montgomery Boyce. Awesome dude. He says that each of the great solas is summed up in the fifth Reformation motto, Soli Deo Gloria, meaning to God alone be the glory. It is what the Apostle Paul expressed in Romans 11.36. To him be the glory forever. Amen. These words follow naturally from the preceding words. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Since it is because all things really are from God and to God that we say, to God alone be the glory 